Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the word of God. Each week during a, a period uh, known as Lent, Today, as our presider mentioned earlier this morning, that it's Palm Sunday. We're, we've been looking at a series of passages from the Gospel according to Matthew, corresponding to what has been known traditionally as the Passion Week uh, of Jesus. And uh, Passion means suffering. And uh, several things uh, that we learn from these passages is one, Matthew isn't just telling us a story here, he's telling us news, good news. He's telling us about the suffering of Jesus. He's telling us about the death of Jesus. But more importantly, more than just giving us information, Matthew interprets that information to teach us why Jesus died. Why is this good news? And today's passage, it was written, it's broken up into three acts, conveniently, so that we can have three points. You have to remember, in verse 45, we read that Jesus was on the cross, and at that moment in time, darkness had covered the entire land. The entire area was covered in darkness. And so the passage focuses not so much on what Matthew saw, but what he heard. And here's three things. Verse 46, a scream. Verse 50, a cry. Verse 54, an exclamation. A scream, a cry, and an exclamation. And each one of these things tells us something about why Jesus died on the cross why the gospel is good news, why it's healing for all of our souls. First, we're going to look at the scream. Verse 46, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you've been going to Metro for a while, you think that this is towards the end of the sermon because this is one of the few verses that I quoted just about every message, but why is this verse so important? It's interesting because in the Greek, the phrase loud voice here in this verse is never used anywhere else in the New Testament. But it means that Jesus screamed. He screamed. So it looks like at this point, Jesus finally broke. It looks like he finally gave up. It looks like he finally fell apart. And he screams out to God and he's basically saying, you failed me. You failed me. 
Now, if you've ever taken a religion class, if you've ever taken a Bible class in college in your undergraduate education, you have to be very careful, first of all, when you're taking undergraduate classes in religion, uh, because no matter how uh, <clears throat> academically prestigious these institutions are, no matter how academically prestigious the faculty is, uh, they're oftentimes very careless when it comes to handling the Bible, and that's for various reasons. We can talk about that another time. But most liberal scholars will try to explain to you that Jesus' disciples made a lot of this story up, made a lot of this entire narrative up about Jesus' death and his resurrection. But think about this. If you were making up an account about the death of the founder of your faith, and you are using that account to try to promote other people to come to that faith, you would never put this account in here. It's too despairing. This is the founder saying, I've lost. This is the founder of the faith saying, I'm giving up. And so even liberal scholars, they're very troubled by this passage. They agree that the only reason why this account would exist in the Bible is because it happened. Why did it happen? And this is the most important part. It's the most important point about Jesus' suffering. Jesus' passion in Latin means suffering. Jesus is experiencing in this moment infinite suffering because of his infinite love. Now think about this. Jesus doesn't say throughout any part of this narrative, oh, my head is killing me because they put a crown of thorns on me. Look at this crown. Look at my hands. Look at my feet, the nails. Jesus has been beaten. He's been flogged. There are sores all over his body. His skin has literally been torn and ripped. He's bleeding all over. He's been accused. There's been terrible injustice in his life. He's suffering from an infection, and he's choking, and yet up until this point, he has been quiet, quiet. He's been betrayed. He's been abandoned by his friends. He doesn't say a thing. He's been accused. He's been on trial. Terrible injustice, and he did it all alone. He suffered it all alone, and yet up until that point, he's been poised. Peter draws the sword when he's about to get arrested. Jesus says, Peter, put down your sword. So what he's experiencing here must be something that's way beyond anything he's experienced up until this point. Way beyond anything he's endured up until this point. Infinitely beyond any betrayal he's suffered, any accusation, the trial, the torture, even the cross, whatever it was, he screamed. He screamed. What was it? Now, we know that there was darkness all over the land. And so that darkness that was surrounding Jesus was really a reflection of what was happening inside Jesus. What was happening inside Jesus? Hell was happening. You see, whenever the Bible describes lostness, being lost, whenever the Bible describes being cast out by God, Whenever the Bible describes complete separation from God, more often, we you know, we think of the image of fire. More often than using fire as the metaphor, we see the metaphor of darkness. That's hell. Darkness. Why darkness? Because the presence of God is light. In 1 John, the writer says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And so our hearts our souls need the presence of God to live. We need light. Just like we need light, physical light to live, we need the presence of God in our lives. But imagine if the sun goes out right now. Imagine if the sun goes out. 
You'd have about roughly eight minutes, they say, before the reality of the sun being burnt out will finally hit our eyes. And then everything around us, everything that is life today would die. And so when God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've been cast out by God. I've been cast into the ultimate darkness. I'm experiencing complete separation from God. And this is the infinite suffering, and it's unbearable for me. That's what he's saying. You see, heaven and hell, they don't exist in time. You know, we try to picture what eternity means. Eternity and time, they're two different entities. Eternity does not exist in time. Eternity is a state. It's a condition. It's a state of being in the presence of God or being away from the presence of God. And that means your life right now is either completely going to burst into the condition of heaven, heaven, the reality of heaven, or it's going to burst into the reality of hell someday. So there's no such thing as Jesus saying, it's not Jesus saying, I just need to hang on for three more hours, and this this sense of hell is finally going to be over. That's not what he's saying. Because what Jesus is experiencing is the eternal lostness in that moment, being cast out completely from the presence of God. And this suffering is more than anything, anything that he's experienced physically up until this point, uh, psychologically up until this point, emotionally, mentally, anything up until this point. Now, we've got to take this in for a moment. Let me kind of, let's make this a little bit real. If your best friend betrays you, it's incredibly painful. You suffer for a while. It's hard to get over, and you suffer. If your spouse betrays you, if your spouse rejects you, If your spouse abandons you, there are probably fewer things that are more traumatic than that. There are probably fewer things that are more tragic than that. If you lose your child, if you lose your child, that pain is virtually insurmountable. You'll be able to move on, but I imagine, you know, when my father passed away, this was around 40 years ago, my father, he tragically passed away. And uh, right around the time that uh, my father passed away, he was buried right by the gravesite of a child that was being buried the same day. Um, he, she died at the age of six. And every once in a while when we go to visit my father's grave, we'll bump into that family. You know, it's happened on a number of occasions. We'll bump into that family. Now, my mother, when she comes before my father's grave, at this ripe old age now of 73, she'll look at that gravesite and almost undoubtedly she'll say, he died too soon. 40 years ago, in his prime, she'll kind of shake her head and she'll pray and she'll say, he died too soon. But every once in a while, we bump into the family who lost that child. And if you saw that family from afar, you would have thought that it happened today. They are inconsolable, crying. The point of all this is that depending on the level of of relationship, depending on the depth of that relationship, that will determine how quickly you can recover from the loss, from the tragedy. So if your best friend, if you lose your best friend, if you lose your best friend through betrayal, eventually you'll get over it. Eventually you'll move on. If you lose your spouse, there, is, there are very few traumas that are more difficult to overcome than that. If you lose your child, it's virtually insurmountable. You'll be able to move on, but it's virtually insurmountable in some ways. But this... There is no relationship as intimate as the one between God, the Father, and his own Son. In fact, God, the Father, that relationship between God and his own Son 
is more is infinitely more intimate than any marriage infinitely more intimate than any other earthly father and his own child so intimate that all other relationships point to the amazing oneness between God the Father and his own son. And so here's Jesus on the cross. His trauma, that means, is infinitely greater than any trauma that we would ever experience. That is hell. And I submit to you, you know, as Jesus is suffering on the cross, he's suffering because he's lost his father. And he is in the, this is an infinite trauma. This is an infinite tragedy, infinitely great. But the father was ripped apart from his own son. The father had to turn willingly against his own son. He's in hell too. He's experiencing hell too. Complete separation. The brokenness of the Trinity. And so, when God casts out his son, whatever Jesus experienced is infinitely greater than all the suffering, all the hells that anyone would ever experience, that anyone would ever deserve, put together. And that's why he screamed. Yes, Jesus' body was torn. It was torn apart. There's a lot of pain. But it wasn't until the Trinity was torn apart that he screamed. But why did he scream that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On one hand, Jesus was actually quoting Psalm chapter 22 from the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1 says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus was actually putting his story into the story, into the narrative of the Bible. Even while he was on the cross, he was literally reciting and recounting Scripture because he is the culmination of Psalm chapter 22. He is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22. And so in verse 8, Psalm 22, without going through the entire psalm, almost every line is a picture pointing to Christ. And in verse 8, the writer is, is uh, looking at the crowd and he says, the crowd is saying, he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. That's similar to this passage in verse 49. The crowd says, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. They're saying the same thing. Psalm chapter 22, verse 15. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. If you actually translate that appropriately, really what the person is saying is what Jesus said on the cross. I thirst. I am thirsty. Psalm chapter 22, verse 31. For he has done it. It's a psalm that kind of ends in praise to God. And as it ends in praise, Jesus, well, the, the psalmist is saying, I'm looking to God in my suffering. And this psalm that starts with, you have forgotten me, ends with a word of praise and saying, I'm looking out and seeing all that God will th do through my brokenness, for he has done it. And if you translate that appropriately, it is finished, for it is finished. Psalm chapter 22 is one part a prayer of suffering, a prayer of lament, but the other part a prayer of trust in God and praise to God. So when Jesus begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying two things. One, I am suffering the infinitely great suffering. But two, though I am suffering, I'm putting my narrative, my story into the narrative of Scripture. And so I trust God. That's what Scripture bleeds, trusting in God and His faithfulness. I'm still going to cling to God. I'm still going to know God that He's going to work through his su this suffering. And what he's saying is, even though I'm in hell right now, even though I'm suffering hell right now, I know that God is up to something good. 
and in the end, they who seek the Lord will praise him. That's Psalm 22. Look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. To the end, he's praying. To the end, he's singing. You know what psalms are? They're songs. That means that he's in his greatest suffering, and he's singing. Why was he forsaken? Why was he suffering? Why was he forsaken by God? For us, for the church, for his people, you. When we talk about Jesus' passion, Jesus' suffering, what is the cause of Jesus' suffering? You are the cause. He did it out of his love for his people. You are his passion. You are the reason for why he wanted to suffer and bleed and die because you are the one person that he couldn't stand losing more than his own life. And the cost of that love, the cost of his love for his people is an infinite suffering and an infinite death. Remember Jonah, the prophet Jonah? If you read in the Old Testament, Jonah was swallowed by this big fish after he was kind of overcast uh, in this, uh, out of the ship during this great storm. And in the belly of the fish, there's one line. In Jonah chapter 2, he prays this prayer. And what he says is, I am in the depths of hell. But then he says, but I trust you. That's really the, the sum or the paraphrasing of that psalm. He says, I'm in the depths of hell, at the bottom of hell, but I trust you. But he wasn't really in the depths of hell, and he didn't even really trust God that well. He trusted God poorly, actually. But here's Jesus Christ, truly suffering the depths of hell. But look at him, trusting and clinging to God, loving God still, even after he's been abandoned by God for us. If the cross means that Jesus is willing to take infinite suffering because of his love for us and obey God in order to redeem us, his people, then my God, my God means what? Jesus, God is not disengaged from our suffering. He's not disengaged from our lives. God is not absent. Even There are many times we live life, you think God is absent from my life. Where is God? Even through injustice and pain and suffering, when God seems most silent, God is present. That's what that means. Even when he seems non-existent in our lives, God is very much involved. Look at the cross. God was absent from Jesus. God was silent in Jesus' suffering. And yet, he was really still engaged, truly engaged in all the problems of the world, truly engaged in all of our sin and suffering. And that means that he's very active in our suffering, very active in our sin. God turned from Jesus' suffering because he's engaged in our suffering, in order to be engaged in our suffering. Jesus took on the ultimate suffering of hell. The Father suffered hell so that he would never be uninvolved in our lives ever again. Just because you can't see the goodness of God in your suffering doesn't mean that God isn't good. Just because you can't think of a good reason for why you're suffering a particular thing, it doesn't mean a good reason doesn't exist. You have to trust that the God who has the power to relieve you also has the wisdom to know when, also has the wisdom to know how. Will you trust that? See, when we are in pain, when we suffer injustice, we immediately react. That's what we do. But what was inside Jesus to the end even as hell was engulfing him. I mean, there was pain, but there was scripture, there was trust, there was a love of God and a love for his people. You know, you've heard many, many times, it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross, it was his love. 
It was his love for the Father. It was his love for his people. He stretched out his arms to show how much he loved us. And he's not just willing to die. He screamed. He died because he went through millions of hells because of his love for you. That's the first, that's the scream, the first point, the longest point. The second point is his cry, verse 50. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't really explain uh, what Jesus said as he was giving up his spirit. Uh, But we know what he said right before he died. In John chapter 19, the last thing Jesus says before he dies is what? It is finished. In other words, what he's saying is, I did it. I accomplished it. I won the actual literal translation is the debt has been paid or, or the transaction has been made. And even if Matthew doesn't tell you what Jesus said, you can infer it in this passage in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The people rose from the dead. That's pretty much what it's saying there. Dark, there was darkness because Jesus suffered the ultimate darkness. But the earth shook because Jesus was suffering the ultimate quaking in his soul. The rocks split because Jesus Christ was cosmically torn from the Father. And people came out of the tomb because Jesus is about to be thrown into the tomb. You see that? But if you went to the temple, Matthew takes a moment to tell you what happens to the temple. If you go to the temple, the holy temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. If you ever go to the temple, if you ever walk into the temple, uh, the ancient temple, what do you see? There are tremendous barriers everywhere. There are blockades everywhere. There are barriers for women. Women can only get so far. There are barriers for Gentiles. Gentiles can only get so much further. If you were a Gentile man, you can get further than a woman in a sense, but there would be a barrier there for you. Only priests can get beyond that. If you were a priest, you can get pretty far. You can get into what they call the holy place. But then you'd be stopped. There'd be a barrier called the most holy place. There was a huge, thick curtain. It wasn't the kind of curtains we have in our home. It is a very, very thick veil, almost like a wall that draped over it that you could not pass through. Only one person, the high priest, could pass through that curtain once a year. That's what would happen. And there that person, the high priest, can enter into the presence of God, but at the risk of his own life. Why? Because the presence of God is brilliant. Because the presence of God is holy. God's beauty is an incredible brilliance. So brilliant, so beautiful, that that beauty actually engulfs you and consumes you. And so these barriers were set up actually to protect you. They were set up to protect the person. But it means that no matter how much you pursue God, no matter how much you wanted to see God, no matter how much you sacrificed, no matter how much you gave, no matter how many rituals you obeyed, You never truly ever got in. No matter how hard you worked, you were still on the outside. Even the high priest, by entering in, could pay with his own life. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. What does that mean? Religion is what? What is religion? Religion is kind of tearing the curtain from the bottom to the top, and you can't. But it's trying to get in through what? Your works. We have to earn access. So we have to grab that curtain and force our way in, work our way in by tearing the curtain from the bottom to the top through our works, 
but you can't. So the gospel is good news because it says that Jesus had to pay the price. Jesus had to pay the sin debt that we owed. And so he was cast out from the presence of God. He was, the presence of God was essentially blocked from him. There was a curtain, essentially, between him and God. Why? The curtain was torn from top to bottom as if someone grabbed that curtain from the top from heaven and split it open so that now all of us can have access. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, you are a royal priesthood. That means on one hand in heaven, every one of us is a king, but every one of us is also a priest. We have the innermost access to God. You see that? That's why he died. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, to telestai, that, that phrase, that Greek word is really what he's saying is that the debt, that sin debt has been paid. There is no more barrier. It's been paid once and for all. The curtain was torn from top to bottom so that we would have access. And in order for us to have access, Jesus had to be rejected. And so he says, it's done. I did it. It's over. There's no more debt, no more sacrifices. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. I've made atonement. I did it. You know how important this is? Look at any of the world religions. And many of us grew up pretty much viewing God this way. Buddha... A Buddhist has the Eightfold Path. Strive without ceasing. That's works. Islam is what? The five pillars. It's all about submitting and obedience. It's all about works. Religion always says you got to work. You got to earn. Growing up in a church, you were taught if you're just good, if you obey, then you'll be loved by God. Then you will honor God. So when you succeeded as a child, it made you proud, and you looked down on all the other people who failed to do that. But when you failed, what did you do? You just felt horrible. You just felt like you had to somehow make up for that, and you beat yourself up, and you beat other people up so that you could kind of step on them and feel a little bit higher, to feel a little bit better, a little bit more acceptable. Does that sound like good news to you? That sounds like work. A lot of work, and you can't do enough. If that's what you heard about the Christian life, either you heard wrong, or you either heard wrong, or the people teaching you were very wrong. That's why so many people left the church in the 90s and now. And if that's you, we're glad that you're here. We want to welcome you here because we're here to share the gospel. The gospel is good news. You know why it's good? When Jesus says, it is finished, what he's saying is, it's over. You don't have to work. Your salvation is not based on your merit. Your merit isn't good enough. You're, thank God, it's not based on your merit. It's based on the merit of Christ. Your entry, your access to God is not based on your goodness, but on Jesus' goodness, imputed. On the cross, his goodness, his righteousness is transferred to you every bit as much as your sin has been transferred to him. We call that theologically, we call that double imputation. That transfer of Christ's righteousness to you, you're covered by his goodness, you're covered by his righteousness, it also empowers you to become righteous. The Holy Spirit enters in, that's tremendous access. That is an intimacy, that is the same intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. Do you see that? There's a oneness there. That's what you receive. It's good news. 
You don't have to work to earn God's love anymore because you can't. But Jesus Christ, he's saying, I earned it for you. The transaction has been made. That means everything. Because if you built your faith on, I got to live right or God is going to punish me. God is going to be mad at me. You're going to burn out. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be depressed. You're never going to know where exactly you stand because deep inside, you're still trying to pay that sin debt on your own. And so you're constantly working. You're constantly trying to pay that debt through your obedience. We're constantly, and that's why we, because we can't get the ultimate access, we're trying to get access with other people. We're constantly trying to get in at work, get in in the church, get in in our social circles. And we step all, we do it the same way. We step over other people to get there, you see? You work so hard, and you're anxious, and you're depressed, and you're tired. And that actually, they say scholars today, commentators today say, that is the mark of this generation today. This generation is marked by the most anxious, depressed, insecure people in the history of the world. Tired people in the history of the world. Jesus says, I died. It is finished. I paid the debt to set you free from sin, to set you free from the curse. So that when you obey, it is a genuine obedience. It is a response to what I have done for you. When you worship, it is a genuine worship. You can rest in me. You were designed to worship me, and now I've set you free so that you can worship me again. You can actually be what you were designed to be. You can trust in me genuinely. You can be free to be restored, to become what you were designed to be. If the reality of God, if the reality of the gospel is personal to you, if you believe in Jesus' perfect obedience for you and his perfect death on the cross for you, if you see that you've been trying to run from God all your life and from this all your life, this rest is for you. That's good news. That's incredible good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt has been paid. It is finished. Lastly, the exclamation, verse 54. I'm going to just run through this very quickly so we can close. I'm going to just say it like this. The centurion in verse 54 looks at everything that's going around. Literally, the world is falling apart around him. There's darkness. Temple's falling apart. There's an earthquake. Rocks are splitting. The dead are coming out of the tombs. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he sees it all. And his conclusion, after looking at mayhem around him, he says, surely this must be the Son of God. This is very important because the centurion sees it. He gets it. The women, women who are outcast in society, women had no rights in society, they're mourning and following Jesus from Galilee all the way to, to see him die, and they're there. They get it. The outcasts get it. The centurion, pagan, irreligious, Roman warrior who's seen all these things, bad things, violence in his life. He's not used, it's not like he's not used to blood. He's seen blood all the time. And yet, here he sees Jesus bleeding and dying and everything else, and he's processing it. And his conclusion, and these women who are wailing, his conclusion is, surely this must be the Son of God. Very important. Why? Because it's juxtaposed in that part of the passage with these other people who are sitting in the passage, and they're just watching him die. And there Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, you know, Eloi, Eloi, it's kind of a, 
It kind of sounds a lot like Eli, Eli, which is a short way of saying Elijah. And so these people, these are the religious, they know about Elijah, they know about God, they read the Bible, they understand history, and yet they're standing around and saying, let's see what God does. Let's see if God will actually save this man. They don't get it. We are more like those people. That's why this passage is in there, because you see this incredible narrative of what Jesus is doing for his people. And yet it's the irreligious pagan that gets it, and the women who outcast that gets it. But the religious people are standing around and saying, I don't really get it. Which one are you? It begs a response. You can either crown him or stand there and crucify him. You can call him a lunatic or call him Lord. Which one is it for you? It begs a response. The reason why it's so important is because, you know, we, sit, we suffer. We suffer all the time. And there are people here who've been to church all their lives, and they're leaders, and they pray, and uh, they study the Bible, and they're consistent in community, and, and those are all good things. Those are incredibly good things. But as a result, they think they get the gospel, and oftentimes what happens is what gets left out is their own character, their own transformation, their own repentance, the very things that are actually good things are preventing them from actually getting the gospel. And yet there are people in this room also, I mean, Metro is filled. We, we know four out of every five people from Metro are de-churched people who are coming back to the church. They're saying, you know, I never thought I'd ever be in a church again, and yet here I am. What a joke. I'm like a joke. I'm like the punchline of a story. I can't believe I'm here, but that brings joy, tremendous joy in life. I never thought I'd be back at the church. you got to hear this story. My story is, is, is funny. And they say, I'm not the type of person that anyone would ever have called a Christian, even now. I'm still struggling. And yet, I'm here and I believe. The reason why that's important is because all that Bible study we do and prayer, prayer and Bible memory and all that kind of very important things. And here, we espouse and we nurture our children that way. That's what we want to do. We want to be that way. Do you think that little bit of Bible study you do every week, do you think that's enough? Jesus, the king, needed God every day in his life. He sat in the word, saturated himself in the word, served others in the word, spoke the truth in the word. Psalm 22, right? That's what even as he's dying, even while he's on the cross, he is incredibly consistent through and through in the wilderness, quoting scripture all the way up on the cross quoting scripture. Do you think that the 15 minutes of the Bible that you read going into church, going into work every morning is going to help you that much? Do you think that 30 minutes that, uh, uh, that you do once a week or twice a week is going to be enough? Jesus Christ saturated himself in the word. So why do we do it? Because it's supposed to bring you to the one thing that you need, and that is will it humble you and convict you to lead you to your need of Jesus again. That's what it's supposed to do. If the gospel changes everything, you would cling to the Bible through every darkness. Look at the centurion. Look at those women. There's darkness. The earth is shaking. The, the rocks are splitting. Everything is literally falling apart around them. And yet when they look and see that in the midst of that hopelessness, their conclusion is this man is truly the Son of God. Apply that to your suffering. 
Put your narrative into that narrative. Will you do that? Put your brokenness into Jesus' brokenness and put your sin into the one who became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. As we come to the table, let's literally take it in and be renewed. Shall we do that? Let's pray.